0: going on everybody welcome back to another edition of the Dolphins in-depth podcast I'm Daniel Yufusi thanks so much for tuning in and it has been a busy busy 48 hours for Dolphins and their fans uh we gotta get right into it the Dolphins Monday morning surprisingly firing head coach Brian Flores after three seasons at the helm uh Flores dismissed after a. Uh, 33-24 win over the New England Patriots, the Dolphins' first sweep over their divisional rival in two decades. The team ended the season on a high note with the win in front of their fans. But again, uh, Stephen Ross making the decision to part ways with the third-year coach. The Dolphins immediately heading into uh, a search for their for their next coach, Uh, It's the third time that they're in this position since 2016, and and again, it was the shock of the so-called Black Monday, uh, the day after the regular season ends. Uh, We're going to get into all aspects of that. Uh, The Miami Herald, we've been covering it from all angles since Monday morning when news dropped, but this uh, first, I want to introduce this week's, I won't say special guest, I'll say friend of the pod. I've got Barry Jackson with me, uh, joining me. Barry, how you doing?
1: Hi, Daniel. It's good to be with you. I haven't been on the pod with you since August, and a few things have happened since then. From from what I hear,
0: a, f- a few things. That's 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 the perfect way to put it. A few things. Uh, like I said, we're going to get right into it. Um, Brian Forrest fired uh, after completing his third year as Dolphins head coach. Uh, he finishes with a twenty four and twenty five record, nineteen and fourteen record. The last uh, two seasons. Um, I don't know about you. I don't want to speak for you, Barry, but I definitely was surprised when I first saw the news. I did think that, the 1-7 and seven start to the season definitely made his seat a little bit hot, uh, but I thought it was admirable the way that the team kind of stuck to his wow. message of one day at a time, one game at a time. They were able to win eight of their final nine games. I mean, they were in playoff contention in week 17. Obviously, they were eliminated with the disappointing loss to the Titans, but especially given the way that they finished that season and they made the most of a really, really bad start. I was under the impression that, you know, Flores was kind of guaranteed another year. I mean, he obviously was uh, given a five-year deal, fully guaranteed deal at at the beginning um, of 2019. And I just was under the impression that despite all the shortcomings, I I thought that he might have been given one more season to kind of get this this offense together, this offensive coaching staff and try to make things work with Tua or maybe Deshaun Watson. But no, uh, uh, Stephen Ross said that's enough. The communication and collaboration wasn't at the level I needed to be to run a successful team. So now they're back to the drawing board. What is your reaction to what we've seen over the past 48 hours?
1: Well, I did not think Brian Flores deserved to be fired. I think it was a mistake. I think he was the organiza- one of the organization's assets. Daniel, uh, to me, you measure a coach primarily on whether he's able to maximize the talent given to him. And to me, extracting five wins out of that team in 2019... And 10 wins and nine wins the last two years was about comparable to the talent level on the team, if not exceeding it. So from that perspective, I think he did good work. He did not deserve to lose his job. Now, if you want to evaluate him for decisions with assistant coaching staffing, certainly he'd be vulnerable in an evaluation there. Because it proved to be a monumental mistake that he did not hire a veteran-savvy offensive line coach to coach a very young group that needed a seasoned teacher and experimenting with Lemuel, uh, Lemuel Jean-Pierre for the first time in his career as an offensive line coach, I think was a huge error. He clearly could have done better than a Godsey-Studensville combination at coordinator. So there, obviously, he was deficient. And then two other areas which I think come into play here. I think he was betrayed by his personnel decisions. Now, Chris Greer gave him a lot of leeway in choosing the players. There's not a single player on this team that that Brian Flores did not want. Now, who was primarily responsible for each player? Only those two gentlemen and Steve Ross will know if they're honest with Steve Ross. But let's be clear, all of the personnel mistakes on this team, the blame should be shared jointly between Greer and Flores. This is not a case where you should only blame Greer. That was reinforced to me today by someone who actually has no axe to grind in this, in this. He's an unbiased person. He wasn't someone who works for the Dolphins, but deals closely with both men, with Greer and Flores. And he said, I'm telling you, all the personnel mistakes the last three years were every bit as much on Brian Flores as they were with Chris Greer. That being said, I still would have kept him because he gets the most out of his guys. He had a defensive system, an aggressive style that works. And what I find most appalling is the reason given for his dismissal, the fact that Steve Ross once again places this premium, this incredibly inflated value on whether his employees get along, whether they can collaborate and communicate. I keep thinking back, Daniel, to Eric Spolster, the Heat coach's statement where he tells us we like confrontation here at times. It's a good thing. I don't know why Steve Ross looks in that at that and says, no, no, this can't work. Unless it reached the point where Chris Greer pleaded with Ross to get rid of Flores. We'll never know if that was the case, but obviously it was serious enough in Ross's mind to get rid of a coach who led this team back from a one and seven start and got 19 wins out of a roster the last two years that probably did not have talent much exceeding that, even winning 19 games. So uh, to me, the mistake was a move. The reason given for the mistake, I think, was laughable. And I think it's just another black eye for a franchise that keeps uh, messing up over and over again.
0: Yeah, it was not the greatest media day for the Dolphins, and over the past couple months and obviously years, there have been a lot of bad media days. But yesterday was uh, was definitely not a not a spark uh, sparkling one with just a bunch of national pundits and voices just bashing the decision. I will say that there are two aspects and two levels, two layers. To this decision from Steve Ross's explanation, there's the on-field uh, explanation, which is, to in his eyes, Flores did not get the most out of the young, ascending, talented roster that Chris Greer built. And it's interesting that you say that um, you know the pitfalls should not of the roster should not be solely blamed placed on Chris Greer, but Ross is essentially crediting. Greer for, for building what he believes is an ascending roster. So there, there is that point. I mean, that can't be that can't be dismissed. He essentially said that we need to find a guy who's going to maximize the talent of this roster. And then there's the second layer to it, which was the kind of internal factors, the communication and collaboration, as he put it, and maybe some of the key dynamics of the organization not being at the level he thinks it needs to be in order to run a winning organization. Now, you did a lot of great reporting um, in a story today about just kind of the the personality of Flores, the way he interacted with um, different players on the team and people in the organization. And we all know... Flores's personality. He may. I'll put it this way. He's not a brown noser. He doesn't kiss people's butt. Um, maybe he was not as willing to maybe ingratiate himself and kind of adapt his personality to to the different uh, to the different people in the organization and on the team. But I mean, I, I would say, and I think you would agree. Uh, agree. You know, you don't make a hiring. You're not hiring somebody to to be everybody's friend. Obviously, you want a coach who teaches people with respect. And, you know, by all accounts, there wasn't anything really, really toxic that Forrest was maybe, was maybe doing. Um, but I, I look at that and I think, you know, in New England, which he drew a lot of comparisons to, to his mentor, Bill Belichick, in New England, Bill Belichick isn't best buddies and best pals with every single person in the organization, but they win a lot. So it's tolerated and they just go on with business. And I leave my, I keep coming back to if Flores had won one more game, if he had won that Tennessee game, if he had won a couple extra games, we're not in this position to say, Oh, he didn't maximize the talent and now the internal relationships are not good enough to merit him coming back. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think you nailed it. I think, too many of the Patriots assistants come to conclude that the secrecy of Belichick and the way he operates is a reason for their success. When in fact, it's merely coincidental. Uh, The Patriots success has been because of Brady, because of Belichick as a defensive mind, because of his stewardship of the team. Obviously they've rebuilt the roster well enough to make the playoffs. So it has nothing to do with the fact that they're secretive about injuries that they tell players to conceal information from the media, that they sound like programmed computers. And I think florists like Patricia and so many of these other former Patriots assistants and Belichick disciples believe that this aspect of the Patriots program helps them win. Well, I would make the point that refusing to say whether a player is coming back from injury or admonishing a player for his trainer, concealing an injury on social media Uh, are just irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Like, did it win Brian Flores a single game last year by refusing to admit that Preston Williams had surgery and was not going to play again? So the the reason was explained to me that he wanted teams to keep guessing and wondering whether Preston was going to come back. Uh, But to me, that has such little value. Teams obviously knew that he wasn't practicing because that has to be uh, information that's given on the injury report. So to me, he wasted a lot of time on these mind games and this foreign intrigue that has little to do with winning. Now, that being said, even though he rubbed some guys the wrong way, even though one player complained to me that he was aloof and never said hello when he passed him in the hallway, all of this shouldn't result in his dismissal. Exactly. He should have been retained. and. If it was, in fact, so bad that Chris Greer told Steve Ross, I can't work with this guy, then it's Flores's mistake for having the attitude that he didn't need to forge a relationship with Chris Greer. If that's the case, then this is Flores's fault, and it really is a ridiculous reason to be fired. But Flores bears some responsibility for it if he thought that he could treat people in a way, especially people who are on the same level as him uh, in the food chain at the Dolphins, he could treat them in a way that they would complain to the owner. So it's, it's a ridiculous reason to lose your job, but even though it's a ridiculous reason to lose your job, Daniel, it's also a reason that was so very much avoidable and Flores could have avoided it if he simply made a better effort forging relationship uh, with Chris Greer. So to me, one of the many aspects of the dysfunction of this franchise that has spanned for 20 years Uh, through bad decisions after bad decisions is how these personal relationships keep resulting in changes. Ireland and Sperano, this is, of course, long before your time as a Miami journalist, they couldn't get along. Uh, Ross had to choose one of the two. Uh, So there have been personal dynamic issues. Joe Philbin and Donna Ponte on one side, general manager on the other side. This continues to be an issue here where people are on sides and different factions And it bothers Flores to the point, I'm sorry, it bothers Ross to the point that he feels compelled to get rid of them, but he only goes halfway. He only fires one of the people. He never wants just a clean start where he fires both the coach and the general manager. So as I tweeted yesterday, I don't know why Steve Ross cares more about the personal relationships between key members of his organization More than he cares about the fact that Chris Greer screwed up uh, the 2017 draft by picking Charles Harris over T.J. Watt, who just had uh, 22 sacks. I I don't know why he's more concerned if Flores and Greer get along than Greer and Flores jointly deciding to trade for a cornerback, Noah Igbenogany, instead of taking Jonathan Taylor. To me, his concern should be, why are the personnel mistakes in the draft happening? why have we screwed up for agency the last two years and getting to the bottom of who's responsible for it? And Chris Greer is every bit as much responsible as Flores, if not more so for those mistakes. So why aren't those types of decisions fueling what Steve Ross does? Why is he so concerned about whether his GM and coach uh, have a good working relationship, whether they're always getting along? To me, that's irrelevant. As long as they're able to get the job done collectively and select players and form a roster, which clearly they did this year, even though some mistakes were made, that whole relationship dynamic shouldn't be a factor to me in whether a coach keeps his job. It should be, is he getting the most out of his team? In this case, Flores did. And from a management standpoint, are they picking the right players? And it's difficult to make the case that Chris Greer's body of work would suggest that he should remain in his job. Uh, How surprised were you, Daniel, with Greer staying? I know Mina Kimes was among many people who said uh, they were puzzled by Chris uh, Greer surviving uh, this this latest uh, change.
0: Yeah, well, you know, obviously Greer has been with this organization for, I mean, just about two decades in you know, various roles, um, you know, kind of culminating in his ascension to GM. And I was really of the mindset earlier in the season, and you know, just through it all, that they were kind of a package deal. Obviously, Greer uh, and Cut was had a role in hiring Flores, but I thought they were kind of a package deal. You know, if um, if one of them was gone, the other was probably gone as well. And again, to to see and to hear Ross just speak so glowingly of of uh, of Greer as kind of a your and evaluator and accumulator, and really to essentially acquit him from any wrongdoing in the state of the state of the team and where they, where they sit, it was very, very shocking. And again, it might just be one of those situations where maybe he has ingratiated himself a little bit more and he's just a little better to work with. And he's aligned himself with, um, you know, some of the top decision makers and, 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 you know, Ross and Garfinkel and others, but that was, that was really shocking to me and it almost kind of puts the hot seat on, 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 career himself to continue. Obviously, he hit the first three picks of the 2021 draft, but it almost really puts a lot of pressure on him to live up to that in the next draft and in uh, free agency with the league-leading $70 million in cap space. I mean, I, I just it just seems like we're, we're, we're seeing like, we're wearing different, we're all wearing different glasses. You know, Steven Ross is wearing, you know, one shade of glasses and we're all wearing different ones where we don't see fours as the main issue. And uh, we see Greer's having some culpability and where the team is and Ross just doesn't see that. So again, I mean, he's the one with the millions and millions of dollars. Uh, he's the one who makes the final decision. So that's it right there. But it really was shocking to me. It was.
1: I think a few things saved Chris Greer, and you, you made some some excellent points uh, there. I think one of them is the fact that he has made no enemies here. He's aligned with Tom Garfinkel, the team president, who has Steve Ross's ear. Garfinkel is vel, is very well regarded for what he's asked to do, which are not football decisions about financial issues, obviously, getting Formula One races here, the tennis tournament, et cetera, et cetera. So Greer has smartly aligned himself with Garfinkel, their allies. Also, Greer has a pleasant personality where he doesn't anger anyone. In fact, he consistently has deferred to Flores for these last three years, and Ross likes him personally. So I think those two things once again helped save Chris Greer. I think the third thing that saved Chris Greer is him delivering on his 2021 draft. So for all of the mistakes made in free agency the last two years, for all of the mistakes made over the past five years, credit Chris Greer for getting it right with Jalen Waddell, with Jalen Phillips, and with Javon Holland. And- Even Eichenberg, as dismal as he was the first 12 weeks of the season, he was competent the last six weeks. I don't think anyone's going to tell you he's going to be a great NFL left tackle. He probably ends up at right tackle eventually, maybe even guard. But he was not an embarrassment this last month of the season. Tua was not being pummeled repeatedly in this last month because of Liam Eichenberg mistakes. And he's a kid who's serious about the job. I think he's going to be a competent NFL starter. So I think those four picks combined with the personal relationship dynamics helped save Chris Greer. And, and on this draft, even though a lot of people, not me, but others in the market were saying Najee Harris at 18, they made the right move with Phillips.
0: Harris well.
1: back, he was under 4.0 per carry part of the year. Phillips is a pass rusher with unique talents. You make that pick. And even though, of course, you can argue that maybe they should have stayed at three and taken Chase or Pitts, Bottom line is that Pitts and Waddle had comparable seasons. Chase was great, but he also had a quarterback who was better with the deep ball and Burrow, uh, an offensive line that was better than Miami's, and you end up with that bonus first-round pick from the 49ers in 2023, as well as the 49ers first-rounder this year. You get a pick of the third round this year, so that trade could be justified. I think Greer would have been very much at risk if this draft on top of the 2020 draft was a disaster.
0: Correct. And, and one last thing before we take a break, I, I want to just kind of throw out there that we, we haven't really talked too much. We, we mentioned the personal relationships, um, but the two a factor. You know, Steve Ross said that the quarterback did not play a role in his decision to fire Flores. But that whole dynamic between Flores and Tua throughout the season was just overanalyzed and I I don't even know if overanalyze is the right word because something just never really seemed right with that I mean obviously the quarterback and, and qu- quarterback and head coach relationship is so important on, on winning teams and you know whether you can go back to, to his rookie year where you know he, he kind of unseated Fitzpatrick um, a couple of weeks into the season and Flores benched Tua multiple times and put Fitzpatrick in there. And um, obviously the Deshaun Watson reports and rumors and Flores just kind of giving a a bland endorsement of Tua as the team starting quarterback. And even in the way Tua spoke about Flores, I mean, he never said anything bad about Flores, but I don't know about you, but just in in listening to Tua and just kind of his mannerisms and the, the way he spoke and the way he looked, I just never got a sense that he like, just love Flores as a coach, or that Flores loved Tua as a as a as a quarterback. And in talking to to Ross, he he said that you know they didn't play a decision and it the, didn't play a role in the decision to fire Flores. And it won't he he won't have a decision on the fate of the position going forward. It'll be in the hands of the next coach, not Greer. I mean, just what role did Tua do you think he actually played in all this?
1: I don't think. Uh, any handling of Tua was a reason for Flores' dismissal. I agree with you. There seemed to be an uneasiness between the two, but a source who I trust who's very close to Tua assured me that their relationship was good enough for them to be able to work long-term. The the person who is very close to Tua said that he does not hate Flores. He thought he was a good coach. They had disagreements. There was an incident in the Tennessee game where Flores was really hard on Tua for playing poorly and Tua reacted angrily. But that happens in NFL locker rooms. I think anyone who's played in the league, us obviously not among them, uh, would tell us that these are typical emotional reactions that happen during key moments of games when you're losing, when emotions are heated. So this person close to Tua said, yes, the Tennessee incident happened, but don't read anything into that. Uh, Tua emerges from this. With respect and generally positive feelings for Flores. Were they best buddies? Of course not. But their relationship would have been good enough to continue. All that being said, I think it was clear with Flores from the start that ideally he probably had some remorse about having two as his quarterback uh, because of the move to Fitzpatrick last year, because of the decision this year to start Brissett on Thursday night against Baltimore, when we saw Tua it enter the. Well. <laughs> he was clearly fine, right? He was clearly well enough to, to perform. So uh, it's known that Flores had interest in the Watson trade. And I think some of his actions sort of uh, uh, betrayed uh, that belief. So uh, I don't say that that was any sort of issue in Flores being fired. I will say. That to me, Daniel, I know we're going to go to break in a minute, but to me, the most shocking part of the Steve Ross press conference yesterday was Ross saying that the new coach will determine their direction at quarterback, whether they stick with Tua, whether they trade for Watson. Now, if Ross was lying, I guess that's fine. Maybe he's just trying to protect himself from having to give an answer to a bunch of reporters about whether he's going to pursue Deshaun Watson. But if he's telling the truth. To me, that's ludicrous to entrust someone that he might not even know yet. I mean, what if they hire a defensive coach? What if they hire Dan Quinn or Vance Joseph? Are you telling me that that guy's going to make the most important (laughs) decision for the franchise in the next 10 years instead of the owner or the general manager who he supposedly trusts so much that he's going to be here forever, well into the 22nd century? I mean, that is patently absurd to say your new coach is going to make that decision without even knowing who this new coach is. So that to me, just the latest example of the silliness uh, and I, I hate to say incompetence. Uh, but verging on competence we've seen in the Stolphins regime now going on 15, 20 years.
0: Yeah, I, I know after the Tennessee game, a fellow beat writer looked at me in the press box and he said, uh, welcome to covering the Miami Dolphins. And I kind of laughed, <laughs> you know, because obviously there was so much excitement for the Tennessee game and they and they, you know, kind of fell on their faces. And I, I thought at the end of uh Monday, I thought, no, this is my welcome to covering the Miami Dolphins moment. Um, it's <laughs> never never a dull day or a dull week and uh this offseason sure sure won't be. Uh we're gonna take a short break, but when we come back, uh, you know. Uh, The net has already been cast for some of the potential candidates to fill Florida's spot as the next offense coach. Uh, We're going to get into some of those names, discuss them, and uh, throw out some uh, some of our ideal candidates. So stick with us. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts
1: with the fall guy.
0: What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Welcome back. I'm still here with Barry Jackson discussing the shocking news of Brian Flores's dismissal as Dolphins head coach after three years. And uh, the Dolphins are, they're getting right into it in terms of the search for their next head coach. Uh, in the past, I guess, 36 or so hours or um, five names have come out as uh, Dolphins requesting interviews. Uh, I'll just jot off her sound off some of those names we have Dan Quinn uh Dallas Cowboys defensive coordinator Kellen Moore Dallas Cowboys offensive coordinator Vince Joseph Arizona Cardinals defensive coordinator Brian Dable Buffalo Bills offensive coordinator and Mike McDaniel, who is the offensive coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. I mean, when you look at this list, Barry, it's a, like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a wide net. I mean, you have some fast rising assistants. You have some uh, offensive guys, some defensive guys, some former head coaches. And interestingly, I think three of the five names that have currently been reported for uh request for interviews, they, they all have ties to the organization, Um, which I thought was interesting because of Ross's comments about collaboration and communication and some of those key dynamics of the relationships in the organization. Do any of these names stick out to you or kind of stand out to you right now?
1: Well, as the late Jim Mandich might say, none of them really make my toes tingle. Uh, (laughs) In high regard, I, I was impressed by him during his time here. I think Dan Quinn is a competent NFL coach. He obviously took his team to a Super Bowl, uh, albeit lost in an historic fashion, blowing a 28-3 lead to New England. So I think Quinn would be a competent choice if he's able to bring with him an offensive coordinator of high quality who would be able to either work with Deshaun Watson or develop Tua. Uh, But no one on the list is a name that makes you say, huh, isn't that a creative idea by Chris Greer and Steve Ross? Boy, that's really an outside-the-box idea. And in fact, I mean, one could make the case that they've omitted – the two most qualified head coaching candidates, at least to this point, and Doug Peterson, former Super Bowl winning coach of Philadelphia, who's been pursued by several teams with open jobs, but to this point, not the Dolphins for whatever reason. And Jim Caldwell, who absolutely maximized what he had in Indy and Detroit, shouldn't have lost his job there. The Lions have been in the toilet since. So even though Caldwell is in you know advanced years over 65, to me, he would warrant at least a call from Ross and Greer. So if you're going to go the route of an experienced head coach, I would prefer a a Peterson or a Caldwell over uh, some of the names uh, that that have been mentioned. Uh, Quinn, uh, I think at the very least would be competent. Vance Joseph, I have doubts about him as a head coach, but I will say I loved covering the man as a defensive coordinator. There has never been a more candid coach who gave you more honest answer in my 35 years in this business than Vance Joseph did. Does that make him qualified to be a great NFL coach? No. Uh, but in his defense, you know, he's a leader of men. He has good presence. He's had some success as a defensive coordinator. Obviously his Denver head coaching tenure didn't work out very well. So I, I wouldn't be sure about that cho- a choice. I would just selfishly be thrilled if he were the pig, just from a journalistic standpoint. Uh, but uh, the names so far, anyone anyone float your boat? I know McDaniel is well-regarded in some circles. Kellen Moore obviously has done a good job with a Cowboys offense that has looked like a, a, a juggernaut at times this year.
0: Yeah, when, when I look at this initial list, and you know we'll get into some of the names that haven't surfaced yet, but when I look at this initial list, I kind of break it down into different different categories. So you have... Uh, you have kind of the the Tua whisperer. I'll, I'll put it that way. And <laughs> Mike McDaniel or or Kelly Moore or Brian Dable. Obviously, Dable has the clear connection to Tua being his uh, uh, offensive coordinator at Alabama in 2017. Um, I, I don't know too much about kind of the, the depth of that relationship, but that's somebody who knows Tua. Um, I would assume would you know feel would feel positive about his skills and might, might vouch for building around him if they, you know, get him in for, for an interview. Um, Obviously Kellen Moore, when I was, as I was doing some research, I found out that he was the last left-handed quarterback to throw an NFL pass before Tua. So maybe you have that connection. And obviously he's had a hand in the development of uh, Dak Prescott and that Cowboys offense. And then obviously Mike McDaniel, who's a younger guy at 38 or the youngest of the bunch, I believe. Um, But he's kind of this, this run game maestro. He obviously he hasn't called the plays with Kyle Shanahan at San Francisco, but he He was the run game coordinator before. Um, We all know how how bad the Dolphins have been running the ball and those struggles um, on the ground. So I kind of look, there's a Tua whisperer kind of section where I don't necessarily want the organization to cater the hire solely around Tua. But I also understand that um, along with hiring a head coach, um, no one move or no one person will have a bigger impact on where the tra- trajectory of the organization than Tua if they decide to stick with them. So those are some interesting names there. Um, you obviously have the the former coaches and that you, we mentioned in Dan Quinn and, and Vance Joseph. And while I'm not, you know, just a little that I've read about Vance Joseph, I'm just not too not too high on that decision right now obviously it's tough to win in any situation if you don't have great quarterback play so there's that um but just doing some research on dan quinn you know obviously he's a he's a defensive minded guy um he he spent some time in seattle with kind of those legion of boom defenses that had a lot of success um but when you look at the first couple years of that run in atlanta i mean the offensive coaching staff which floors struggled to assemble a competent one Quinn's uh, offensive coaching staff was very, very impressive. You have Kyle Shanahan as the offensive coordinator. I believe you have Matt LaFleur, who's currently the Green Bay Packers uh, head coach. You have him as your quarterback's coach. You have Mike uh, LaFleur who's now the offensive coordinator with the New York Jets uh, as an offensive assistant. And you also have Mike McDaniel as a, as an offensive assistant. And obviously he, he's one of the names that's been thrown out as a candidate. I don't know the extent of the role that uh, Quinn had in bringing all of those guys together. I do know from, from just doing background research that he struck relationship with uh Kyle Shanahan when he was back in Seattle and he brought him along with him to Atlanta. So I will give him credit for that. And those are some very very good offenses in Atlanta. Um, obviously notably the 2016 uh MVP for Matt Ryan. I am impressed by having somebody who can keep the stability of the defense, which we all know is a strength of the team right now, and maybe being able to bring along a competent offensive of coaching staff. We the Dolphins don't need. I mean. You would love to have the top-ranked offense, scoring offense, and yardage offense in the league. But if you can maintain a top 10, top 12-ish defense in Miami right now, I think you can be a real competitor with a top 13, top 12, top 11 offense as well. I mean, you don't need to be, you know, the the greatest show on turf, you know, circa two, two 20, uh 2022 You don't need that. I think you need some stability, on the offensive coaching staff, you need some, you need some, 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 something that's innovative, something that's fresh. Um, I would not, I mean, it's early, but I would not be mad at the Dan Quinn signing. But I, I find myself going back to Stephen Ross's comments about um, having a roster that he believes is ready to compete now, and just given the struggles on the offensive side of the of the ball, in order in terms of fire um, hiring a competent offensive coordinator, position coaches. I would like to see a veteran offensive minded coach and the name that I keep coming back to as you know, my ideal candidate is Doug Peterson. You know, that is a guy who has won a Super Bowl. He brought the best out of quarterbacks such as Carson Wentz and Nick Foles. We know that he can put a competent and a Super Bowl level coaching staff together. I do have questions about kind of how that tenure ended in Philadelphia. I know there were some issues with Wentz, some kind of headbutting with the uh, owner, Jeffrey Lurie, about the coaching staff. But again, those are obviously questions that will be asked and answered in the, in the, in the, you know, the interview process. But Doug Peterson just seems like the
1: perfect fit right now. Right. I agree with you. I think you make a lot of good points. I wonder if we haven't heard them link to Peterson yet because they're afraid of bringing in a coach who might want personnel power. And again, Greer was really good about that with Flores, where he deferred to him on a lot. Ultimately, he didn't defer to him enough because Flores not only wanted continued power. I was told he wanted more power. He wanted more people to report to him instead of Greer. Uh, So Peterson on paper does make sense. I just feel bad for the young offensive lineman on this team and for Tua. If he survives this, they're going to have to learn yet another system. This will be the third offensive line coach uh, for Austin Jackson, for, for Rob Hunt, for Solomon Kinley. And as Juwan James once made the point to me, Daniel, he said every time a new offensive line coach is brought in, we have to change, make dramatic changes in our technique. Uh, There's just so much new learning required. And you're taught things by a new coach that the former coach say you shouldn't do. So it's just a big headache. That's going to happen again to these young linemen. And two is going to have his third coordinator in three years. If he's the Dolphins quarterback next year, which I would put at uh, maybe 40%, maybe a little higher, uh, but certainly no higher than uh, 50%. Uh, So that's one of the negatives, but at least if you bring in an offensive coach like Peterson the comfort you can take in your defense is that it's a veteran group. This core, you would think, would largely return. You're obviously going to continue on with Wilkins, Raquan Davis. Manuel Agba should be a free agent priority. Jerome Baker will be here. You have two young safeties. You have two terrific veteran corners. So if anything, you know, maybe they add a new starting inside linebacker. Uh, to play alongside Baker. Obviously, I didn't even mention you're going to build around Jalen Phillips and Van Ginkle, so they'll be back as well. So I I don't want to say that the defense will coach itself, but if you have an offensive-minded head coach, the point that you were just making, and you bring in a competent defensive coordinator who realizes this group played successfully when they were attacking and blitzing, you figure you'd be able to find 100 guys who have the intelligence to realize this veteran group thrives when they play that way, for the most part, then I think you can make it work. But to me, hiring a defensive coach who wants to play a different style and then having to worry if he hires the right coordinator would be a little worrisome. And here, here's something else, which, which you and I should talk about. Why in the world would Steve Ross, after being burned three times by hiring assistant coaches without NFL head coaching experience, why would he again go that route? It didn't work with Joe Philbin. It was clear from the start that Joe Philbin was better suited as an NFL assistant coach. It worked for a year with Adam Gase, and then everything fell apart his last two years. And obviously, it ultimately didn't work out with Flores, even though I think he's a good coach. It didn't work out because the owner believes it didn't work out. So why would you go that route again again? of an assistant coach, instead of changing the formula, you know, the definition of insanity, right? And so if he keeps doing this and expects different results, I don't know what to tell you.
0: Yeah. I look at the, the vacancy and, and I just, I find myself asking what do the dolphins need? I mean, this wasn't a, this wasn't, you know, we, we spoke to Jerome Baker hours after the news came out about Flores aspiring. firing and he said that Flores never lost a locker room. So this isn't like a this isn't like a young, rambunctious group that like has no respect for their coach and needs to be disciplined. Like I don't think they need an authoritarian. I, no, I, I look at the issues, and and it really was mainly. I mean, we, we just we all, we discussed the the internal relationship building issues, but the issues really when you bring when you peel back the layers of the onion was. Flores did not do a good enough job of and this is really the I would say the sole blemish on his on his resume as Dolphins. And coach was building a respectable offensive coaching staff that could develop to a properly. That's the correct. That's really the correct. And that thing.
1: wasn't the reason why Ross blamed him uh, or fired him. Ultimately, Ross cited publicly collaboration and communication. And we know there was tension with Greer. So that might have been the primary reason he was hired, uh, fired. It was a primary reason, but I think you nailed Flores' biggest failing. Yeah, so so then we leave ourselves with this opening and we
0: say, well, what do we need? And, and again, by, by Ross's account, this is Stephen Ross, what he told us, he thinks this is a ready made roster. I mean it's not it's not a perfect roster. I mean there's a reason why they were nine and eight and they started one and seven. This not this isn't a perfect roster, but there's an opportunity to improve on it in the off season, And by his account there's an opportunity to win right now. And to your point, that's why I, I leave myself saying I'm not gonna eliminate all first year head coaches, all, all, you know, assistants who don't have that experience. But if you think this is a team that's ready to win now, you want somebody that has done it, that doesn't have to go through the growing pains of hiring a staff and trying to get them all together and um, just the first year rookie bumps. And that's why I go back and I say Peterson just seems like the perfect hire of the guy who has done it before. He has the experience. And again, there's gonna be pressure to win right now, but I don't I don't think that like, this is, this is a position or a vacancy, and, you know, there's a lot of people who say that there's a lot of uh, more more desirable vacancies. I think this is a pretty – this is at the top of the list for me personally, just in terms of the cap space, some of the foundational pieces. Obviously, the quarterback is a question and kind of the direction that you're going to go at that position is a question. But in terms of resources and just the, the appeal, I think Miami is definitely at the top of the list, if not number one, you know. So, again, I think that a veteran coach, somebody who can come in right, step in in the door day one and know what they're doing is perfect. And I think that there is a real window to win in Miami, um, whether that's with Tua, whether that's with somebody else. I think there's a window to win in 2022. And we just saw, I mean, Nick Sirianni with the Eagles, you know, there was there was not. You know, he was kind of laughed at, you know, early on in his uh, season, uh, his introductory press conference. And um, nobody thought the Eagles were going to be in the playoffs, but they are right now. So there is a window and an
1: opportunity to win immediately. I'm with you. And, uh, and he, if they get Watson, uh, you know, then I think you'd be, you know, you go into next season, considered a top six team in the AFC. It would be something, though, if firing floors ultimately dooms their chances of getting Watson because as Ian Rappaport said, one of the main lures for Watson to come to Miami was playing for Brian Flores. So if they fire a coach who is probably as good or better than any coach available, and it costs them an opportunity to get Deshaun Watson, then this regime will end up looking dumber than they already have looked for the last 15 years.
0: Yeah, that's the one layer of this that remains interesting because we, you know, I know you asked a great question about two to Ross about Watson. You know, did you speak to him and will this impact your potential pursuit of him? And Ross kinda gave a non-answer and said he deferred it to the <laughs> the coach to be determined. Um that's a it's an interesting thing because we still don't really know or at least I don't really know who played a leading role in that. I mean now we're it seems like it was Flores that was kind of pushing for Watson, but Greer was the one handling calls during the season and Greer and Greer was the one who you know, pretty much explained and justified the pursuit of Watson uh, after the trade deadline passed. So I still do wonder, like like you said, how much of Flores' dismissal will impact um, their ability to pursue Deshaun Watson? Does he even want to come here? Does the next head coach want to pursue it? I mean, it's I feel like now we, we really can't address that until the next coach is in. I um, mean, obviously he won't be able to say much about Watson. You know, that new coach when he when he enters the role. Um, But it's just another layer of, you know, what's going to be a a thrilling and exciting and lively offseason for the Miami Dolphins.
1: Yes. And in closing, I would say this on the Watson issue. I do think that Ross was not being entirely forthright when he said the new coach will make that decision. This is a ownership decision. If you're going to acquire a quarterback who has legal issues, serious legal issues hovering over his head, this is ultimately a Steve Ross decision. I know without question that Steve Ross was interested in Deshaun Watson. Uh, Again, someone told me last year, uh, a close associate of Ross, that Ross spoke excitedly about this possibility going back to last spring. Ultimately, he just didn't want to pull the trigger on the deal because of the unresolved legal issues. Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk has repeatedly said that Ross is fueling these talks. He would have made the trade if four of the 22 uh, women who have filed civil suits had settled uh, I know Florio reporters that 18 women have agreed to settle. That's uncorroborated at this point. But I would expect another pursuit of Deshaun Watson. To me, the only question is, will another team beat them out uh, in terms of volume of draft picks or other assets? Uh, and also, uh, I guess, will the legal issues be settled by mid-March? Because you and I have both seen reports that Nick Casario and the Texans want resolution on this by mid-March. It's important for everyone that resolution comes then because you need to know how much cap space you have entering the offseason. And as I've written in this past week, the Dolphins' cap space would diminish by about $40 if they trade for him, but they could still create a ton by restructuring him, cutting eight guys on the team and still be able to have a lot of flexibility to build a team, whether it's around Tua or whether it's around Watson.
0: Yeah, the Watson situation was definitely, you know, prior to Monday's, Shocking news. That was definitely the, the top story of the Dolphins offseason, and that was probably 1A, 1B, along with who the next head coach is. Um, so, obviously, the next couple of weeks or so will be devoted, you know, for the Dolphins, that will be devoted to finding the, the next guy to take over that role. And then uh, we kind of jump back into, into that. So, again, it's going to be a, a – <laughs> we won't have a dull, a dull moment during uh, the next couple of months leading into the 2022 season. Um but that brings us to the end of another edition of the Dolphins in Depth podcast. I, I want to thank Barry so much for for joining me to talk after again uh, the shocking news of Brian Flores' uh, dismissal. We're both going to be uh, off, but still monitoring the news. Uh, so the po- so the podcast will be off as well. Uh, but for sure uh, at Miami Herald, MiamiHerald and on the Dolphins in Depth podcast, we'll be back soon um, to get more. And what is going to be a very interesting Dolphins off season. Until then. Uh, You guys take care. Bye.